This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm making this podcast today with Melvin Yurofsky for the New Books Network. Melvin Yurofsky is, I think, our most distinguished legal historian. He's going to talk to us today about his book on dissent, which came out in 2015 in hardcover, and then I think it was 2017 in paperback. So dissents, as uh, anyone who follows the court, recognizes are a terribly important function of what the court does. Hasn't always been that way. In fact, I want to begin by asking Professor Yurofsky uh, what dissent was like back in the Marshall Court, the first court of any distinction um, back in the early 19th century. Because Marshall himself, if I remember right, wrote almost half of the opinions in the 30 odd years that he was chief justice. What were dissents like in that time? Well, Marshall's idea was that the court would gain in prestige and influence if it spoke in one voice. Um, And the voice that he wanted was his. So as you said, he wrote most of the opinions, even when, uh, in a few cases, when he voted against what would be the majority opinion, he would write the case. And um, he did not favor dissent. So they're very few. And as a matter of fact, um, there are hardly any dissents from that time that we still study or consider to be important. Um, There is none where we can say, oh, yes, and then the court went over and adopted that as its um, jurisprudence. Um, Dissent was allowed. He understood that, and we do get uh, some dissents. Uh, Jefferson was very unhappy that uh, some of his appointees did not dissent more. Um, But the fact of the matter is that most of the, even the Jeffersonian appointees and Madisonian appointees, for the most part, agreed with Marshall uh, in his drive to bolster the influence both of the court and of the national government. So it would seem that the very nature of a dissent seems to go against the idea that the authority of the court comes principally from the fact that you have a majority opinion and hopefully a unanimous opinion. So how does the dynamic of a, of a dissent play out on the court itself? Is a court weakening itself by having lots of dissents? Because in the Marshall case, or the Marshall uh, Court, it's against the backdrop of, of the uh, serial 
the, the, the Syrian opinions that prevailed for just a few years in the Supreme Court, where every justice wrote his own opinion, that dropped away and um, opinions for the court became the norm. So once you have someone speaking for the court, it seems as though having a dissent is going to weaken the authority of the court. Is there anything to that idea? Well, that was that was a, a view that um, has been held right, right down to the present in some ways. Um, uh, you may recall that when John Roberts, uh, the current chief justice, were at his confirmation hearing, said he would like to return to the day when a majority of the decisions were unanimous and the court spoke in one voice. Um, he's, you know, and part of uh, the problem of a chief justice is trying to marshal um, the people what, what Harlan Fiststone called his wild horses. You can't always get them together. Uh, but in terms of importance, I would say that there are no important dissents in the Marshall era. None that we, you know, if I'm teaching con law, there's none I, I spend any time on. Once we get to Tawny, however, we start to get some important dissents. And um, then you have, some of them are just, I think you're wrong. And this is why I think you're wrong. Um, we get that um, a number of places. And in fact, that's still, I suppose, the main reason why people dissent. Um, an individual justice thinks that um, his or her colleagues are wrong. Um, well, let me, let me stop you right there, though, and ask you a question about that Tawny court that you mentioned, because there's a remarkable story about the dissent in the Dred Scott case, the dissent issued by Benjamin mm -hmm. Curtis, because Tawny was not happy about having a dissent come out, and he actually engaged some shenanigans to keep that dissent from ever appearing. Can you tell us about that? Right. didn't work. It didn't work. Um, Tawny was hoping that the court could solve the slavery problem. It was a misguided effort from the very beginning. Um, and then Tawny, in, Tawny uh, could have gotten rid of Dred Scott uh, very simply, saying that Scott is not a citizen, therefore he has no uh, access to the federal courts, therefore we have no jurisdiction, end of case. Um, and he probably would have had... Um, I don't know if he would have been unanimous, but he would have had a strong majority on that. But he had to go out of his way to um, declare that the Missouri Compromise was unconstitutional, that um, African Americans could never be citizens, and this got uh, at least some members of the court all worked up. Now, he tried to have the dissents held back until after the majority opinion was published, um, but the people writing dissents were onto that, and so they sent their dissents out to uh, journals before then so that they were available at the same time as the majority, especially uh, Benjamin Curtis from New England. Um, and those dissents really are the first, I would think, really important dissents. We don't study them very much anymore because they had a short life. Uh, in the sense of uh, the Civil War came along and made both Dred Scott, the majority opinion, as well as the dissents, um, irrelevant. 
um, which is a shame because I think those are, are very important. Um, you begin to get um, more dissents as we move closer to the modern age. Um, but well, what about the, the 19th, uh, other famous case about race, Plessy versus Ferguson? Was there a dissent there? Yes, there was by the first Justice Harlan. And it, interestingly, it, it's a very powerful dissent. Um, and yet for a long time, it was completely ignored. Um, I note in the book that a study of uh, constitutional law textbooks used in American law schools in 1946, not a single one mentions Harlan's dissent in Plessy. Um, it was just taken as separate but equal was the law. And then when the modern civil rights um, movement starts, Harlan's dissent, not only in Plessy, but in the civil rights cases and in uh, the Berea College case, are rediscovered, as it were. And um, then, of course, you run into a very interesting thing. Harlan's idea that um, you know, race constitution is colorblind um, is initially used in support of uh, civil rights groups seeking desegregation. Uh, in the hands of John Roberts, it's become a tool for um, striking down efforts on behalf of uh, civil rights. Uh, if the way to get rid of race is to stop talking about race. That's his view, uh, which he expressed in the um, uh, Louisville and Seattle school cases. Um, so uh, that's, that's a strange thing for that to happen. But well, we let did me, have uh, uh, dissent here. Pardon? Let me jump ahead a couple of decades and ask you about one of the great dissenters on the court, Louis Brandeis. What was his approach to dissents? Well, there are two things you have to keep in mind here. And you, uh, the first is um, that up until the Judges' Bill in 1925, most of the cases heard by the court would not be heard today. They're nickel and dime cases, uh, which affected only the litigants. Uh, Brandeis told Felix Frankfurter, it's more important that they be decided than they be decided right. Just get them out of here, essentially. And so even if he disagreed in some of these cases, uh, he and Holmes both decided to keep quiet because it, just, it wasn't an important matter. When, however, he thought there was an important matter, then he would dissent very carefully and um, with one or two exceptions, almost passionlessly. But part of it is he only dissents in constitutional cases. And that's important because at this time, um, as we move from the old thing of all sorts of cases, you know, that, that thing, I'll take it to the Supreme Court. Uh, well, that's, that's what was happening. Bill, can you hear me? Because I'm not getting any... Um... No, no. When you're talking, you're not going to see anything on my, uh, on my uh, EKG. No, I'm looking thing. at the... Uh, yeah, but I'm not seeing anything on mine either, so that's... Oh, all right. I see 
Um, uh, I'm glad you mentioned that, but I see the uh, EKG monitor so-called moving um, as you speak. So I think we're okay. I have my uh, sound turned up as much as I can. And if you turn yours up as much as you can, then I think that's the most we can do. Well, it, it's up as much as it is. Uh, the thing is, see, once you, it's one thing to descend in a case which has very little lasting meaning. Okay, and essentially you're saying, well, I think this is wrongly decided. And we get an awful lot of dissents without opinions for that reason in this period, from, you know, up until uh, the 30s, practically, where um, somebody will say, I, I think that's wrong, but, you know, I'm not going to bother writing a dissent. I'll just vote. So we don't know um, why somebody uh, did that. In, in Buck v. Bell, for example, there is a dissent, but not an, uh, not an opinion. There's a dissenting vote by Justice Butler. But there's no dissent, so we don't know why he dissented. Once we start, once Taft's strategy is clear that he wants the court to be a constitutional court, now it begins to matter because now you have to have some sort of continuity between how you vote in this case and how you vote in a, sim in a case involving a similar constitutional issue. Um, so if you're going to vote yes here, and you get a similar thing, you're probably going to vote yes there. If you're going to dissent here, you're going to dissent there. And it changes the whole nature of dissents because constitutional issues keep coming back. We rarely have a constitutional issue that is dead in the sense of it's been decided, etc. cetera. Uh, even Brown um, has continued, you know, uh, in the sense that... Um, uh, the modern school cases are efforts to avoid resegregation, and you have a conservative Supreme Court saying can't use race for that either. Now, Brandeis's view on speech uh, would come back, and ultimately would, I mean, he, his, one of his great lines was, my faith in time is great, and his view on speech and on what the First Amendment meant didn't triumph till 1969 in the Ohio case, Brandenburg. Um, almost uh, what? Almost uh, 30 years after his death, um, Justice Black's um, dissent on the need for lawyers um, for criminal defendants is first set out in 1941, and it doesn't um, win over until Gideon B. Wainwright in the mid-60s. Um, so the sense, uh, I view them as part of a constitutional dialogue in which uh, a majority on a particular case will say, this is what we think the Constitution means. And you will have one or more people, up to four, who will say, no, I think you're wrong. I think this is what the Constitution means, and this is why we think it. A good dissent has to explain not only um, why the person is dissenting, I think you're wrong, but also has to lay out what that person thinks is the proper constitutional interpretation. I think a good modern example is that of, um, um, hang on a second, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg in the original Obamacare case, where uh, she, 
she wrote, uh, I, I think the majority is wrong on what the Commerce Clause means. And then she wrote an extensive dissertation on what she thought the Constitution's Commerce Clause should mean. That's what makes it important. And if she'd merely said, I think that they're wrong on this, uh, the Commerce Clause can do much more than that, I dissent, it wouldn't have meant anything. So what you have in all the great dissents is not only the uh, statement, I think the majority is wrong, uh, but this is why I think they're wrong, and this is how I think this question ought to be resolved. This is how I think, this is what the Constitution should mean in this area. Well, in the same way that, that Brandeis was a great dissenter writing these passionless um, dissents, his colleague Holmes was the same way, if I understand these things correctly. Um, what I want to do is contrast um, people like Holmes and Brandeis and their principled dissents, the ones that are based on different view of the law, setting it up brick by brick, so to speak, with um, dissents that are more rooted in personality. And it's easy to think of someone like McReynolds from the Four Horsemen of the 1930s uh, with his almost screaming dissents at the majority. But I really want to talk about, in the 1940s, the prima donna dissenters that you talk about in your book. Can you tell us a little bit about them and the nature of their dissents? Okay. Up until the 1930s, 90% of all the opinions handed down by the court were unanimous. Um, starting in the 1930s, uh, with the four horsemen opposing the New Deal, you're getting dissents both in, in favor of the New Deal and opposed to the New Deal. And the thing is that the issue that was raised in the 1930s over economic, economic powers of the federal government are a dead letter by 1942 um, when the court upholds the uh, Fair Employment Standards Act. Um, they disappear. Um, later on, uh, Justice Douglas uh, will write essentially uh, uh, adopting Holmes' um, rational person uh, thing that if an economic regulation, either by the state or by the federal government, makes sense to a rational person, this court has no business going any further than that. It's not our business to decide the wisdom of that. Uh, the only question is, does it have the power? If it has the power and it's not irrational, we don't need to see, talk about it anymore. And that's essentially the end of, uh, at that time, until many years later, of economic issues. And something that um, Roosevelt and his appointees probably never guessed at was that the agenda, the court's docket, would change so dramatically in the 1940s from economic matters to um, civil rights and civil liberties. And on this, um, these are relatively new issues for the court and um, um, they're all over the place. And the biggest prima donna here is of course, Felix Frankfurter. 
um, who wrote more dissenting opinions, I believe, than he wrote majority opinions. <laughs> um, he, um, he thought that he knew everything, and he was always annoyed when uh, his colleagues on the court refused to take his advice. So he would write a dissenting opinion uh, or a concurring opinion, anything separate, saying, no, 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 that may be the right results, but you don't understand. I've been, I've gone back to every case in English history to Magna Carta, and this is what you should have said. And the result is that nobody pays much attention. Um, there is going to be a new biography of um, Frankfurter out I think this fall, trying to rehabilitate him. Um, I can't wait to see what that looks like. Uh, but in terms of dissents, we still read Brandeis's dissents. We still read Holmes's dissent. Um, about the only um, dissent we read by Frankfurter is in the Flag Salute case as an, a good example of a whiny dissent, um, but not one that uh, any future court really paid much attention to. Now, that's and a dissent course, that, another, was, that, that was a dissent in which he, he talked a great length about his personal experiences. Yes. Right. And then there was uh, his dissent in the apportionment cases. Uh, in which he completely misread what could be done and said, the youngest member of this court will live to regret that. That, of course, was Brennan, who wrote the majority opinion, saying the court had jurisdiction. And um, it turned out he was wrong on that. So, um, you know, um, a friend of mine um, has uh, wrote a biography of Frankfurter up until the time he went on the court. And he said he started out liking Frankfurter. By the time he finished the book, he had a sort of guarded respect for him. Um, I wrote a book on Frankfurter on the court in which I said I started out with guarded respect and I wound up totally disliking the man. <laughs> um, he was not only a, a prima donna, he was a nasty prima donna. Um, He's a fellow who didn't believe that the, he also didn't believe the rules applied to him. When it came to what the court yeah. should be doing, I mean, he yeah, has a couple I mean, he of pretty significant black marks against his name. Yeah, he was a hypocrite. He uh, said that you know this should be like a monastery; we shouldn't have anything to do with politics. And uh, in the meantime, he kept advising Franklin Roosevelt. And in Frankie's, and uh, frankly, he wrote uh, the basic um, law for Len Lease. Now. Um, the other prima donnas were, of course, um, Robert Jackson, um, Hugo Black, and Wemo Douglas. Um, Black and Frankfurter, for many years, were bitter enemies. Um, and it was only after Black's wife died and Frankfurter sort of reached out to him that the two of them sort of made up. And as... Um, Black grew sort of more conservative in his old age. Um, he and Frankfurter became closer. Um, after Gideon was decided, Black went to visit Frankfurter, who was off the court by then. And he came back and reported that Felix had said that if he were still on the court, he would have voted that way as well. 
even though he had fought every effort of it up until that time. Another of the prima donnas was William O. Douglas. Um, Douglas is, is an interesting, if strange, case. Um, he could dash off an opinion and um, a dissent in no time. Uh, he had a phenomenal institutional memory. Um, you know, you and I would probably have to go to U.S. reports to look up a case here, a case there. He knew them all from the time he'd gone on the court. And um, I, I once had a conversation um, with Justice Ginsburg in which, you know, the only women's rights case she had ever lost involved a Florida statute that gave widows greater, some greater benefits than widowers. And uh, Douglas wrote the opinion for the court in that. And we were walking in the court and she said, I don't think he even paid attention to what I said. He had already made up his mind. And I said, uh, that's not really true. I said, uh, Douglas made up his mind between the time that the Chief Justice gabbled the argument to a close and the time he got back to his chambers. By the time he got back to his chambers, he could tell his clerks how he was going to vote. It wasn't you. He did that for every case he was involved in. Um, Justice Brennan once told me that um, um, Douglas was one of the two true geniuses that he had ever met. I know the other one, too. Now, uh, yeah. <laughs> Poser? Yes. That story, yes. by the way, is, is apocryphal, um, according to some of the other right? observers. Some people dispute that that story. They say that. Um, well, no, I I heard it. It's the genius thing he told me that I know is he true. actually told it to you. My guess is that Posner is the other one, but I know he said it about um, Douglas because I interviewed him about Douglas. But um, Douglas had, uh, you know, um, Ted White once called Douglas the anti-judge because he refused to write opinions that read like law reviews. And um, what I argued in Douglas's favor is that um, he was a common law judge. Um, he was less interested in precedent than whether the law itself made sense in this particular set of circumstances. And so some of his opinions thank God, don't read like law review cases. That's what I've always held against Frankfurter. He turned every opinion into a law review case. Um, but Douglas, you know, uh, sometimes he went overboard. But, um, you know, like trees should have standing. Uh, but his basic argument was that in the field of, in, of, in the environment, um, you had to give standing to those groups who are trying to protect natural resources. Um even if they didn't own the natural resource. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So, um, and then there's black. Uh, could be... Let me just jump in and say something. Pardon? 
let me just jump in and say, when it comes to Douglas, you are to be congratulated because your 1987 book, your collection of Douglas letters, uh, helped reshape the way we saw Douglas because in those letters, he comes across as a very hardworking, really committed jurist. And that's not something people were willing to associate with him. But the letters, I think, are proof that he was a very dedicated justice. He was. And um, I, um, for a festrift, well, it's not exactly a festrift, it, it was to mark, uh, I think, the 50th anniversary of Douglas's appointment to the court. Um, I was invited to attend, and I decided to take a look at uh, collegiality, both between Douglas and uh, his clerks, and Douglas and the justices. Uh, so I interviewed all the justices still on the court who had who knew him, and um, over a dozen or more of his law clerks. And it was an interesting picture that uh, here was a man um, who could be a son of a bitch. And um, that, that view, by the way, was held by a number of his clerks. Yet even they said he was a miserable person, but he was an hardworking, he knew the law. And um, one time, uh, one of his clerks told me that he had told me to research something. He was uh, going to write a dissent. And um, the clerk said, you know, he got the law books down. He got journals. He's, finally, he went into Douglas and he said, I, I can't come up with anything that's going to help you. Um, this was a Friday afternoon. Douglas said, bring in all that stuff. Let me see what you got. Monday morning, the clerk shows up and Douglas hands him an opinion, says, see what you think of this. And he had pulled it out. It was circulated and what had been like a uh, seven to two vote went to five to four. And while it was still a, major, a minority opinion, within a couple of years, just uh, Douglas's view became the majority opinion. Um, and that's, you know, one of the values of a dissent. It sort of sets up uh, a marker that when you come back to this constitutional um, issue, think about this. You may have been wrong the first time around. And, of course, you know, we've seen this happen a number of times. Harlan's dissent in the civil rights cases, uh, Brandeis and Holmes in the speech cases, um, Brandeis practically rewrote the law of the Fourth Amendment uh, in a dissent. And, of course, he introduced the whole notion of a constitutionally protected right to privacy in a dissent. Um, so these are the important ones. Um, not only that, um, I think one of um, Brandeis's most important opinions was actually a concurrence in the Whitney case. Um, it's in fact a dissent, but for technical reasons, it's a concurrence. Uh, but my friend Mark Tushnet, who's written about you know, dissents a lot, says it is the greatest dissent ever written. And um, Brandeis and Whitney essentially reshaped how we think of the First Amendment. Well, we don't, we're not going to see their likes again. You still there? Justices <laughs> we've been talking about. We have, we have uh, a new era in the court that begins, I would say, when Justice Scalia gets on the court. I think it was 86 or 87. 
And all of a sudden, dissents become used in a different way. And I don't know that there's ever been a, a series of dis dissents by any justice that were as vituperative as Scalia's. I asked you earlier about yeah. the nature of dissents and the role of personality. And I have to think that with people like Scalia and then later Alito and some of the others, there was a personal grudge at issue. And the dissents were designed to serve that grudge. Am I going too far in saying that? I think so. I think so. Um, Scalia's, there's no doubt that they were more vituperative. And in some instances, they were, I think they crossed the line into the personal. Um, but Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was his close friend and opera buddy, and the target of a number of his dissents said she never took uh, umbrage at them. And in fact, when he would write a dissent to one of her opinions, she said she would go back and, you know, make it better. She said, some of my best opinions are that way because Scalia dissented. But Sandra um, Day O'Connor had the very different view. Was, yeah. But the part of the thing is that um, during his years on the court, no one could write as well as Scalia did. Uh, the last person before Scalia who could write that well was uh, Justice Jackson. And while Brandeis wrote very important dissents, there are only a couple of them that rise to the level of great literature. Um, whereas Holmes, you know, is everybody's darling. The um, Holmes, however, if we can get back to him for a minute, Holmes was less interested in law than law as philosophy. And um, he once said, you know, uh, he wrote at a stand-up desk, and he said when his knees started to hurt, he knew the opinion was long enough. Um, and uh, the problem is he always left loopholes, not deliberately. But Brandeis once complained we get more requests to rehear cases in which Holmes has written the opinion than by anybody else. Uh, Brandeis left no loopholes. Uh, in either his majority opinions or in his uh, dissents. Um, but for instance, you, you take some of Holmes's favorite, um, um, not favorite, our favorite, let's say, you know, the um, uh, free speech cases. And um, you, you know, don't shout uh, a clear and present danger there. That, that's the famous phrase. What does it mean? In the hands of a conservative judge, uh, any radical or even leftist activity is clearly and presently dangerous. And that's how conservative justices interpreted the First Amendment during most of the teens and 20s. Um, Brandeis gave us in Whitney a far better rationale for the First Amendment that it was necessary for good citizenship to be able to hear all parts of an opinion. And eventually the court, you know, abandons clear and present danger. Every now and then you'll still hear it, but the court hasn't used that uh, test for a long time. 
Now, going back to Scalia, um, I used to read his opinions, not because I agreed with them, but by golly, they were well-written. And that was in contrast to a lot of the other opinions that came down. Um, when I teach con law, I tell my students, look, you've got to read the cases, but you don't have to abuse yourself. You don't have to, you know, read every word and underline it and put it, you know, use a yellow marker. Uh, just get the idea of what the judge is trying to say. Because an awful lot of these opinions are just boring. Uh, even when it's an important subject. Um, well, would you agree with so, this? Uh, you know, the fresh you, air, would, even if he, I think, overstepped the mark sometimes. Well, would you agree that he uh, greatly influenced uh, Clarence Thomas and Alito in the way that they've handled their dissents? Because they, too, write very Probably. angry dissents. Probably. Um, but, you know, they, they have an agenda that's, I think, extremely conservative. And um, it's I'm waiting to see what happens with this new lineup on the court. Now, in terms of angry dissents, uh, please don't count Sotomayor out of this. Uh, she's handed in a couple. And in one case, uh, Justice Roberts took, sent the case back to the lower court rather than have her file a uh, dissent in which she called the majority racist. So, um, Well, I, I, I'm glad you mentioned her. Because uh, and one reason that talking about dissents is a good idea right now is that uh, dissents on the Supreme Court, the, the topic has been getting some attention in the popular press. So, for instance, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, or was it last week, on the website The Hill, which is a uh, well-known and well-respected uh, website, there was an article about uh, the headline was, or the title was, A New Supreme Court Justice's Dissent on Abortion could be a game-changing. And it's all about Sotomayor and her past dissents and the speculation that she might unleash fury in the Roe v. Wade revisiting case if it turns out that the court uh, decides to reject uh, 50 years of precedent. Um, and it actually raises for me a really important question of when it comes to the role of the, the, of the dissent, it seems to me that, in a way, the dissenters have uh, access to a nuclear bomb. They can, in a way, blow up the whole court. Because it's possible in our dissent to the recent uh, abortion case, as it comes down in June, I imagine it'll come, that the dissenters could say, this is just illegitimate. You cannot turn your back on 50 years of history, the way we have with Roe v. Wade. Well, I'm sure somebody... I'm sure that uh, if uh, the majority decides to strike Roe down, um, you're going to get uh, an opinion like that. And I wouldn't be surprised if Sotomayor uh, would be the author of that opinion. I think that um, the other, um, Elena Kagan, 
who is very, very smart. But I don't think she would write that type of dissent. She could, she could write a strong dissent. But I do not know if she would write an angry dissent the way uh, Sotomayor would. Well, what would the public uh, think? Area... What would the public what? think if Sotomayor wrote that kind of dissent that said this whole thing is illegitimate? I think a lot of the public would agree with her. This is doesn't that leave the you know, Supreme Court in a very vulnerable position? It does, and Justice Roberts is very much aware of that. Uh, you know, he's conservative. Probably, if he were a side judge, uh, he would have very little problem striking down Roe. But something's happened to him, as also happened to Rehnquist. Once Rehnquist becomes Chief Justice, um, he's concerned with the integrity of the institution. He, um, I won't say smothers his conservatism, he, but he does um, moderate it. And uh, we've seen Roberts do this a couple of times. Uh, um, the most famous, of course, being the Obamacare case, knowing that if the court struck down Obamacare completely, there would be a huge, not only uproar, but a social disruption. And um, he is also well aware that um, thanks to uh, Donald Trump, a lot of Americans now see the Supreme Court as the judicial arm of the right wing of the Republican Party. And uh, he doesn't want to be there. The other question mark here is um, Kavanaugh, Justice Kavanaugh, um, also a conservative, uh, but also was a clerk to Justice Kennedy, who was for a number of years, the swing vote on the court, a conservative, but the swing vote because he too had this institutional uh, sense. Um, I am concerned, of course, about Roe, but I'm also concerned about the affirmative action case that's coming up. Um, I think that there are three ways that the affirmative action case could go. Uh, one, as some liberals are already um, complaining about, it's going to be a six to three vote and they're going to strike it down. I'm not sure about that. I think it's going to be a five to four vote that could go either way. Um, the We're not talking about a 50-year-old precedent here. We're talking about a six-year-old precedent. Um and I think that people like Kavanaugh and Roberts and possibly even um, the other woman justice, whose name escapes me right now, um, may have an institutional sense that you don't go jumping around that fast. Um, so we'll see. I'm, um, well, based on what you're, well, you're saying... Said, Roe, I'm more interested in what the affirmative action case turns out. Well, based on what you're saying about Justice or Chief Justice Roberts, I guess the question has to be, how much influence do you think he actually wields with his colleagues, his conservative colleagues? Do you think it's possible for him to actually go into their chambers and say, look, 
this is where we are. We can't let this happen. We can't lose the respect of the American public. Is it possible that he would actually do that kind of thing? It's, it's always possible. Uh, <laughs> but I think that's what's going to be the argument in when um, they meet in conference. And I think at least two members of those six, in addition to Roberts, might be open to that argument. Now, I could be completely wrong on this. Um, you know, one of the things, as, as, as I tell my classes, never guess what the Supremes are going to sing because you have no idea what they're going to do and for what reason. Uh, but there are a couple of cases coming up where, you know, depending how they vote, could do an enormous amount of harm to the institutional prestige of the court. And Roberts is well aware of that. Well, I'm going to take the cynical view and say that I don't think that the others care much about it. They're in power now. They're going to be in power for some time now, and they don't care. They're just going to exercise that power, and they're going to make a, a mockery. It's very possible. Of Federalist 78. They're going to make a mockery of it. That's very possible. Uh, and you may be, I hope you're not right, but it's, it's, it's certainly a possibility. <laughs> uh, me too. Um, but we shall see uh, when the opinions come down. There will, no doubt, however, be very strong dissents. Let me ask you something about Chief Justice uh, Earl Warren. I, I talk a lot about him with my, my friends who, who are court watchers and their legal history buffs. And I come back to this idea that he was a great, great chief justice because he knew what was right and what was wrong. And that when he came onto the court, he got Brown versus Board of Education to be 9-0 over the objection of Felix Frankfurter, as you know. Uh, how great a chief justice was. Hang on was a second. I've got to sure. turn this off. Sure. Yeah. Um, there were two things about Earl Warren. Um Ah, come on, go away. People keep, don't know when to stop. Um, he was a great chief justice because, among other things, he was a very good politician. He understood, you know, he'd been governor of California, he had been attorney general, he held elective office, he had been a candidate for, you know, or wanted to be a candidate for president. Uh, if you look at the two chief justices before them, they had very little, uh, or one had experience but didn't work. But you take a look at, say, from Charles Evans Hughes. Now, Hughes was able to run the court efficiently. And he also understood in the 19, mid-30s what the problem was going to be. And um, he helped defeat Roosevelt's court packing plan. He did it quietly. He did it, one might almost say, subversively. But he played a role there. Warren did have, by the time he got on the court, I think a much better sense of right and wrong than he had when he was governor of California. And it's always a surprise that the man who upheld the Japanese relocation was also the man who wrote Brown v. Board. Um, but he got the 9-0 to zero vote not by going around to people and saying, I'm right and you're wrong, he went around and he cajoled them. Um, 
uh, Frankfurter and Jackson, for example, opposed segregation, but they were not sure that the court had the power. He convinced them that the court did have the power. Um, and finally, he got it down till there was just one vote left and went out. That person came around also. Um, so he, he was, I think, you know, a, he had a good sense of the court as a political institution, not a partisan institution, but a political institution. It's one of the three branches of government. And government is politics. And um, I, I think, you know, there's nobody on the court today really who is an experienced politician. And um, I, I think that shows. Uh, when Sandra Day O'Connor was on the court, um, she used to say every time she heard a case that involved the power of a state, not the federal government, but of a state, she would ask herself, if we decide one way, how will this affect the state? How will it affect its powers? How will it affect its people? If we decide the other way, what effect will it have? Um, that was something I think fairly rare, but um, I think the people who have been some of the most effective voices on the court, either in majorities or especially in dissents, are those who have had an understanding of the governing process. Well, I think what you're saying is, is terribly true and terribly important, and I, I feel we're in a very bad place right now because no one does have that experience that you're describing. So... All right, well, on that not terribly optimistic note, I'll bring this to a conclusion. As I said, you have to hold on and not go away for a few minutes. But I'm going to stop the recording and, and thank you for your time, uh, uh, Mel, for, for doing this. A lot of great insights, as I knew I would get from you. Uh, just think about it. We, we talked about 200 years worth of the Supreme Court. That's pretty impressive. All right, so I'm going to uh, end it now. And again, thank you very much for doing this. Uh, you're welcome, Bill. Thank you.